So Parth, what have you been eating? Trent, thanks for. Wait, Trent, you seem you seem Something's closer. Different. You seem a little different. It's almost like we're looking at each other in the eyes. Yeah. Like eye contact. Is there is there something different about our recording today, Trent? I'd say there's an additional level of human connection and maybe a little bit of um like pep in our step or you know sparkle in our voices. Yeah, so in case uh you feeble-minded listeners haven't figured out thus far, Trent and I are doing an in-person recording for the first time ever since doing this podcast. You know what they say, if you're going to start a podcast, wait until your 42nd episode. And st- and, and before you so ever, heard, yeah. you know, meet each other face to face. I haven't I, seen Trent in 14 months. Yeah, we saw a movie in person the other day. We sure did. We saw How'd Scott Pilgrim uh, in theaters for its 10th anniversary uh, Dolby Vision audio edition, whatever. Yeah, I thought it'd be an IMAX. And then afterwards, uh, you explained to me that it wasn't. Yeah, sorry about that. It's okay. But um, but Trent, what have what have you been eating? Have you eaten anything? Yeah, have, did since, I just let you into my home? With since no I'm in your childhood food? home, I was I was never granted access to soda as a child, and so you offered me a root beer, and I was like, I know I'm 20 years of age, but I have to start to lash out eventually. So I'm I'm caffeinated, and I took some of your little brother's lunchbox, um, like Takis, and um, if you can't tell, I'm firing on all cylinders. Like my blood is pumping full of. Um, soda and Takis. What about you? Thanks for asking, Trent. Um, Wait, for the first time I know the answer because I watched you consume this item just moments ago. What did I have? Wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I, had, I, had, I had guava ice cream. Oh, heavens. Really? Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, an, it's a surprise for Trent. But um, yeah, my mother, after I showed uh, Trent around my childhood. His Blu-ray collection. Yeah, I showed him showed him around town, and we were hot and sweaty. And my mom offered us some ice cream, some guava-flavored ice cream. Yeah, she said, do you want some hot peppers on top? And I said... Well, she wasn't... Ta- it's not like pep... She wasn't no, saying No, I was pepper. talking about, like, red chili flakes. Yeah. Well, not flakes, uh, like like chili pepper, like, like red powder. Mm. It goes well with it. I just didn't want it at that moment. Do you want to... Can- should like, we should we start? Yeah, I was just gonna. I was or? just. I was just like, we, we want to do the episode. I guess you're uh, all in my house, so we should probably cut to the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, where, what do we talk about, Trent? Our show. This is the, we have a podcast. It's about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member that worked on that film to talk with us about their experience working on that picture. This week we're talking about, what are we talking about, Trent? Judas and the Black Messiah. Who do we have to talk about it, Trent? The production di- designer, Sam Lasanka. Wait, was he nice? I loved him. Yeah, wasn't it like, excuse my French, but like a fat hour 20 convo? It was is super that, is long. Is that how the hip-hop children are talking these days? Is, you want to say that again, Trent? Street lingo? Yeah, no, it was... I don't I don't remember how long it is after I edited it, but yeah, we talked with him for a good hour and a half. Um, wait, I'm, wait I, I forget. He worked on, you know, Good Time and Uncut Gems and Francis Ha, too, right? Not just Jews and the Black Messiah? He also worked on the first Francis Ha. Wait. You said you said Francis Ha, too. And I was oh, I meant T-O-O. That to, yeah. That's okay. Um, that's sort of comedy. I mean, I know we said at the beginning, this is a movie podcast, but 
as you can't if you can't tell Parth is slowly trying to transition us into a comedy podcast. Um I'm, I'm, I've been told I'm funny. So here's that, our interview guys. We hope you enjoy. Yeah, we hope you enjoy the interview. Bye. We'll well, see, we'll see we'll see you. We'll see we'll you. We'll see you during the interview. It'll just be past tense us. Yeah. Um I mean, we yeah, recorded this like a month ago. This was month. This this was April. Trent Parth. We were just kids back then. But then at the end of the episode, if you if you manage to stick around, you'll get a little additional taste of current Trent Parth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Sam Lysenko. He's a production designer that's worked on movies such as Uncut Gems, If Beale Street Could Talk, Francis Ha, and our film for today, Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah. Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. We're really happy to be here. So we just want to start off by just asking what your relationship with movies was as a kid. Um, that's a great question. I was sort of raised on the fringe of the business to a certain extent. My... Um, my father, for many years, uh, found moderate success as a, a commercial and television actor doing uh, bit character work. Um, and, uh, you know, commercial commercial work paid the bills, uh, but it wasn't uh, um, super frequent stuff. Uh, and it gave me uh, a little bit of a window at a, at a really young age into, into the world enough that when I was uh, 12, 13, 14, I used to uh, do extra work so that I could take off from school. Um, and I didn't have any preconceived notions. I wanted to be an actor or anything, but, uh, but it was, it was a great opportunity to make a little scratch and not have to go to class. And then, uh, as I got older, uh, I sort of parlayed that into a job at a casting agency when I was in high school doing extras casting. Um, and, uh, the upshot of that was that, um, I, I primarily was the one who would videotape actors coming in to read and be the person who was reading off camera with them. So oftentimes I would get access to filmmakers because I'd have to talk to them about what they were trying to get out of actors coming in uh, for the cold read um, and, uh, and found that I, I, I had enough of a, an understanding of how to communicate with directors that I thought maybe something behind the camera was, was something I wanted to pursue. So I read that you went to BU and you studied film there, and I, I know that I know that's where you met the Safdies and such. But from your curricular activities, what would you say was your take-home message from four years of film school? Uh, well, it was it was a tricky time for film school because they didn't. My chosen field wasn't yet taught, uh, even as an elective. Um, I had no. I graduated from film school with a degree that I am wildly appreciative of and formulated not just my experience working with the Safties and coming up in film school with, with uh, Josh in particular, but, um, but I came out of film school with a degree that gave me an understanding of uh, how to approach cinema from a technical perspective that I am wildly appreciative of. Um, and, and an understanding enough of film history to wax poetic with people who are obsessed with deep cut cinema for sure. Um, you know, uh, my, my junior and senior years, I was, I was writing 40 page papers on like post new wave Godard video work. Like I, I was, I was in the trench. Um, but, uh, now uh, there is much more of an understanding of, of individual artisanal skill sets applied to the craft, like individual trades that are, that are being approached in film school. And I only know this because I've gone back to guest lecture 
guest lecture in scenarios where I was a B student and now I'm being asked to talk about production design because there was such a lack of, of understanding of what that was at the time. So um, it's kind of a roundabout answer to the question. But I think um, the shifting dynamic has given me a pre- appreciation for what it was at, at that moment. It was a very transitional time and we, we were still editing on Steenbeck's um, and at, and at the time, uh, we, I think we were the last graduating class, Josh and me, cause Benny is a year younger. We were the last graduating class to record audio on Nagra tape and have to transfer it over on reel to reel. And so we, because we were the transitional generation, what we would do is secretly, we would all, cause it's very, very hard to edit audio on a Steenbeck, um, especially when you're stoned and have been eating Taco Bell for three days and you have, you got to turn the thing in at 6am or whatever. But, um, what we would do is we'd import all the audio into final cut and then edit our audio in final cut and then re-export back to Nagra tape so that we could bring it in. And, and then, um, I remember kids would like literally start cutting up the Nagra and taping it back together. So it looked like we had done all our audio editing on the table, but in actuality we were, we were already embracing computers. So, um, so I think, it, I think it's, I think, Film school has dramatically shifted so much that it's it's not an apt comparison now to what it was at that moment. So when you when you got out of film school, like what was your first real job in the industry? Um, uh, I we didn't have any. Um, Josh, <laughs> J- Josh and I talked very um, uh, forcefully about. The fact that we knew we wanted to live in Manhattan, we knew we were going to try to scrimp and save and share a little apartment. And our first apartment was like dorm room size. It was it was petite. Um, And we knew we needed to get like a creative space where we could make shit and figure out how to pay the rent making shit. That was our biggest priority. Um, So we started kind of on this hunt of like, okay, let's do day jobs. Um, We were working for the artist Tom Sachs in his studio. I was like wood burning his... um, his, his sculptural pieces um, and then taking whatever crappy PA work I could. There's a couple of credits I have on IMDb for just like really, really disappointing pictures that I'm like, I'm literally doing like PA and not, not even key PA stuff. I was like um, whatever lower than getting coffee would be. I remember, I remember I took a job and I was I, at the time we, I was still living. I, I moved back to my parents' house. Josh and I hadn't gotten the apartment in the East Village yet. I'm living in my parents' house in Brooklyn, and they live all the way out in Bro- like near the ocean. It's not even Brooklyn anymore. And I took a job driving a box truck. I could barely drive for this m- no budget movie, and I remember being so exhausted, being worked so hard for such little pay that I would come home crying, and I was so tired that I would drive this truck back to my parents' house every night and the roads were empty because it was like you know, three, four in the morning. I'd fall asleep at every red light and put the thing in a park and God knows how long I'd be sleeping for an hour, 10 minutes, 38 seconds. I have no idea. I would just, I would be awoken by a car behind me honking to let me know that the light was green again. Um, Sounds and, like a fun time. Yeah, I did. I, I did That's that for a new about low, a year. I'm sure. It was, it was bad, dude. I did that for about a year. Um, in my like infinite wisdom thinking like, Oh, doing PA work will give me access to the business. Now, meanwhile, like Josh, Josh and Benny and I were making shorts that were kind of crushing it um, on the festival circuit, Uh, especially second tier festivals. Like, and at the, you know, South by Southwest was very cool at the time. And we were doing stuff like slam dance. So we were constantly bopping around to all these festivals and some of them were prestigious. You know, I remember, 
um, I had a I had a maxed out credit card with a student limit that I had used for airfare to Cannes because we had our first feature and our first and a short film were playing at Directors Fortnight at Cannes, and then the next day I had to leave a day before everybody else so I could fly back to do PA work where I. I got yelled at for tying a knot incorrectly. And I, the guy said to me, the, the, the key PA goes, uh, listen, if you want to make it in this business, you're going to have to learn how to tie down a truck because uh, you, you, you're going to wash out. And 24 hours prior, I had been on a red carpet in a stolen tuxedo uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. I, and I never said anything to the guy. But there was this very strange kind of like daytime, nighttime world happening where um, very luckily any monies we were making, we were kind of pooling and just making cool stuff that we wanted to make. And then during the day, trying to figure out how we could eat. And it, like, when I say how to eat, I literally mean like, you know, you see a film set on the street and I would go up to the furthest crew member I could find and say, Hey, let me borrow your call sheet. And then I would use the, I would have the call sheet like a prop and I would just walk up to catering or craft service and just start stealing food from the film sets and bringing it back to, um, to our office, uh, stuff like that. Like we were, I mean, we were hustling and we kind of like, this is, a, this is a very long answer, but we kind of started to uh, become this gravitational pull to other people who were in our situation as well. And Lena Dunham started hanging around and then Greta Gerwig, who we knew from festival started hanging around. And then when eventually I moved out of that apartment and I shared an apartment with Greta and then this other kid, Ariel Shulman, who was an old childhood friends of Josh's. And then Greta and Lena got a space in the same building on a different floor. So it, it became this kind of hive, this downtown hive of, of kids who couldn't afford rent and had barely enough equipment between them all to help each other with the, with uh, all the short films. So uh, pretty clearly you started on like a micro budget doing like hundreds of shorts with the Safties. So I've heard. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, now you're making real live motion pictures nominated for Oscars and stuff. So when did when did that start to change? Like what was like the the big break, so to speak? And how would you say the job of a production designer really starts to change, like with more budget and more flexibility? Um, the 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 it was never a, a question of like a dynamic shift where it's like we made it, kids. It was more like um, a a collection of fortuitous small choices that over time started to kind of coalesce. Uh, so it was like Francis Ha was a big, a big bellwether for me personally, not just because it, it assured me that I could um, design a picture as a designer uh, and, and work in a, in a legitimate sphere, but also because it was kind of one of the major times where I was working with a critical filmmaker outside of the safety world. It was a separate environment. Um, yeah. And a bound back, no less. Um, and then, uh, I think that, that was like, that was a big move. Uh, and then after that, uh, you know, it was just kind of slipping on banana peels upwards. Like, uh, Barry Levinson had seen Francis Ha and was trying to do something of, of a similar, no budget, non-union sphere. And then I wound up doing that with him. And that was a, another movie with Greta and Al Pacino. Um, and that was legitimate enough for, and we got along well enough that he recommended me for this uh, this Jennifer Lopez cop show on NBC, and then all of a sudden now I'm designing like a real TV show. It was just it was these it, these correct choices presented themselves um, in a very lucky way, and it was only after I had gathered like my union card and a little legitimacy, having done TV and stuff, that I felt comfortable going back to the Safties and saying like, "Look, I'm a real designer now. Let's let's actually engage in in, in bigger stuff." Um, 
and and you know the budgets kind of punched upwards a little bit too incrementally it was like this this thing's three three million then it's then it's 4.2 then it's six then it's 10 um uh so it was it was always it was always just as scary i think that maybe um the realization that i could do this and not be homeless started maybe 10 years after college something like that where you're not really worried about this month's rent you're starting to worry about like three months from now's rent and then you're like okay all right i'm i'm i I got i i got phone numbers i could call i got keys i could crash at you know very cool so jumping forward just a little bit uh you worked on obviously judas and the black messiah Mm -hmm. and uh how'd you get involved with that um i was uh i was working on another film in los angeles california and i had shipped my car out west uh for that and uh and and kind of bumbled around the the city for for a number of months on the project and i left my car and i came back to new york and i was like shit i gotta go get my car uh so i booked a ticket more of just like a friend trip uh and i was gonna stay with friends and pick up my car and get it back to the east coast and while i was out there i got a call that um shaka had the script it was ready to go they'd been talking to other people the timing hadn't worked with something else i was on that fell apart for me and um would i be willing to do a lookbook meet with him and it's going to start very quickly and so i did it there in california um in my friend's pool house like as fast as i could i read the script i assembled a book and my knowledge base as a child was not chicago obviously it was new york but i thought that there was enough of a shared aesthetic that i pulled imagery that felt right um and that i had an understanding of at least internally and literally the next day like they were like all right shaka would love to meet in person and i walked into the room in uh is in hollywood and uh and he was there with all with the producing pool and the realization that shaka and i grew up just a couple blocks away from each other and had a shared kind of uh language style and a lot of shared influence growing up um, and our parents were teachers and that kind of thing. Like it was, it was apparent that we were brethren. Um, and, it, and then it was a really good fit because we just, we, we just liked talking to each other about it. So it, it felt right. I think I, 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 I think he would say I, I won, I won the movie in the room. He like, he knew within 10 minutes. Um, and, and I literally shipped my car back East the next day and went straight on to Cleveland to start prep. Cause it, that's how close they were to, to getting ready to go. So I was listening to another interview with you and you were talking about how in gems, uh, there was like a wire in the background of the, uh, uh, and you like argued about that with Darius Kanji. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was very cool. And so, uh, basically what is your relationship with, uh, the DP and how, what about Sean Bobbitt in particular on this film? Um, it, hopefully it's a good relationship. Um, it's for me in a very general way. The production designer comes on very often months before the cinematographer starts. A lot of time the cinematographer has been decided, but they're not paying for prep. So I get unfettered access to the filmmaker for an extended period of time. And I'm like the first creative person um, on their team who's there and present and and fighting for their vision instead of fighting for the budget. Um, So you have this kind of love affair with this director that, that is very passionate over a shared ideal of what this thing should be. And then the cinematographer shows up. And for me, I love to allow that relationship to blossom because that's their time. That's their time to shine. That's when they got to start doing shot lists. That's when they have to, they have to figure out what the, what, where in common they see this world. 
And it also gives me an opportunity to actually fucking go do my work and be left alone. And I don't have to talk to the director constantly. Um, so it's a very advantageous moment where the, sh- the trust is shifted and I can now fulfill the role of alleviating the director's concerns. Like I got this, go, go shot list. And that can, that can create a really great environment with a DP because you're giving them room to have that love affair. And by the time I'm ready to come back into the fold, I have answers to their questions about what things should look like. Um, I kind of liken it to like, um, and I've said this before in other interviews, I'm sure, but like, you know, when you, when you have, when your parents tell you, you have to take your younger sibling with you to the mall and, and you're in the backseat. Like I love that, that rationale because now the director and the, and the cinematographer in the driver's seat, I'm in the backseat, like, Hey guys, look at that building. That's cool. Um, that, that I think can be very fortuitous. Um, and there was no doubt with Sean Bobbitt that that everything gelled in terms of personalities and what we thought the movie should be and the amount of creative control he was giving me with color and my appreciation for what he wanted to do with light. And um, it was a very, very fluid experience. I, di- I don't think that there was maybe day one only, maybe the first day of photography on that movie where we're still kind of feeling each other out. Um, not just me and him, but the whole crew. Uh, but there was not a single moment really on that movie where aesthetically we, nobody was on the same page. We all kind of knew that the movie was going to look the way pretty much it turned out um, from day one. Uh, so, you, so you hope, you hope that it, you hope it's going to be an experience like that. Um, it, you know, and you have, you have these beautiful conversations about like putting lamps in for practical lighting and stuff and, and, and just kind of uh, watch movies together and stuff. So because you came on so late, was there like and much designed at all before you came no, on or was it no, just you? No, they hadn't even settled on what city they were going to shoot in yet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, I, I threaded that needle where it was like the last possible moment where a designer would come on before okay. anything, before anything had started being. So, so it wasn't just like a race. To the no, no, no. We had ample time. Like I got there and then I was, I was there okay. prep, prepping the movie for four and a half months or whatever before photography, something like that. Um, but it was like, we needed boots on the ground in Cleveland stat to see if this could work in Chicago kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, I was just going to ask, you had the unique challenge of making one U S city look definitively like another nearby U S city. <laughs> and how is it like trying to disguise Cleveland? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little tricky because with period, because the, the responsibility of what you're looking at shifts, uh, to a certain extent from the cinematographer to the designer, because I have to spend an exorbitant amount of time saying, guys, it's 1969. You can't look that way. Um, so I think in regards to um, Cleveland specifically, it provided us with some shit that Chicago no longer has. That was period appropriate based inherently on the, um, the disregard for urban renewal in Rust Belt cities uh, like sodium vapor lights and stuff, uh, coin operated parking meters. Um, the problem with Cleveland inherently is it's not, um, it's not a metropolis like Chicago is. And so you would constantly have holes in your skyline that you would want to avoid. Even in the hero building, the black Panther headquarters building, there's an abandoned lot next to it. And Cleveland is permeated with abandoned lots because there wasn't the need to build as much. And then over time it has, there has been so much that's been abandoned that it's cheaper to raise. So you had these clusters of areas that looked great. And then if you, if you turn the camera the, the wrong way, it would, it would literally just be 
three empty lots in a row where the buildings had been demolished at some point. That became the biggest challenge in Cleveland was making it feel like the, um, the, uh, the tapestry of the city hadn't been unwoven the way, the way it actually had, you know? So just sort of speaking on the period aspect of it all, like what kind of research did you end up doing and for like clothes and, you know, setting and, um, you know, how'd you get wardrobe and everything, that sort of stuff? Um, or sorry, well, not war- wardrobe, but yeah, you know what yeah, I, mean. I know what you mean. Um, yeah, I, I mean, shout out to Charlize, uh, the costume designer. She she did an absolutely incredible job, and and I think that my answer to this question would probably be similar to her answer to the question, which was that um, the our our major thesis in terms of how to approach design for the picture was rather than make it look like a movie taking place in 1969, we wanted to make it look like a movie that happened to be shot in 1969, which is a very different uh, cinematic um, uh, approach, I guess. Uh, You know, in terms of research for that, there, you know, hours and hours and hours of library of congress and and wikipedia and google images and pulling references from books and reading the old case files and stuff and you start to get this kind of um general sense of what aesthetic values the black panther party had uh both in their interior spaces and their their garb and their methodology and their speech patterns um, and not just the Chicago office, but various Black Panther offices nationwide. And then also like the, you know, the rise of urban decay in, in major U.S. cities and um, sanitation control issues and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the blight of uh, white flight from urban, urban populations and what kinds of, um, what kinds of impacts, it, immediate impacts were felt in that period. And so... Um, Things like putting garbage on the streets in every shot became uh, tantamount. You know, those that was the stuff to defend aesthetically when when talking to Warner Brothers about about the look of the picture. I think because um, it was it's not a grand looking movie, um, even though it's a big broad action movie, and we thought that that would do better justice to to the story and also still keep it visually entertaining. So uh, one of my favorite moments in Judas is when. Judith first gets the car and he's going to pick up Fred and there's a needle drop and there's like a camera pan on him mm-hmm. driving. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And uh, I, I'm turning this into a question. Um, sure. How uh, I, I feel like designing the inside of cars, like, it must be kind of limited, but also I'm sure there's a lot you can do. And also shooting on the street. I'm sure at a certain point, things that you're able to design become out of your control. Yeah, that was that. I thank you for noticing that. That's my favorite shot in the film as well. Um, and it's partially because uh, we had scouted like you know half of one block, and I'm looking at my budget and the man hours and the amount of time I have to do it. I'm like, okay, no problem, I can give you these storefronts, no problem. And then Shaka and Sean were like, well, we want to do this tracking shot, it's four and a half blocks long into a U turn, terminating on the opposite side of the street with the storefront in, in mid ground and then the car is going to pull out and we're going to pan left with it and look straight down the pike. And I was like, <laughs> I remember looking at him. I was like, okay, we'll figure this shit out. Um, and it became a critical problem solving mission to go building by building for those three and a half, four blocks. And just, I said, I don't want to worry about making any of this look like the 60s. I said, what I want to do is eliminate anything that isn't 60s. 
I was like, the baseline is there. The architectural language works. I was like, kill that sign. Take away that, that security camera. Paint that day glow orange thing black. You know, and it was just just pound, 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 just pounding every single building into submission, clearing all the cars as far as we could see. And a, a little of that is kind of understanding um, your lens lengths and your, um, your aspect ratio and, uh, and really being confident that if he's on a 40 mil on, you know, a hostess tray on this side of the car, that any car that's seven cars back is going to be so soft focused that even if the headlights are on, you still won't be able to tell that it's, that it's a modern vehicle. Um, but, but yeah, it was just like micro, a lot of that movie was like micro problem solving and taking advantage of existing architecture. What was the second half of the question? There was more to that. Uh, it was in car shooting in cars. Yep. Um, yeah, honestly, uh, three and a half pages in a car. Uh, it's a, it's a break for me. You know, it, I, you work with the, tr- with the transportation department and the picture car coordinator, pick the right kinds of vehicles for the movie, which is super fun sub job. And there's tons of meetings where you're just like waxing with teamsters about cool old cars, which I absolutely love. Um, and once you get to the place where it's like, this is the perfect car for the character. And we could also get a double the other ones down in Virginia. I'll get it trucked up. Then it's more about, you know, what the hell are we going to see out the windows? That's that's the big problem. But but especially with contemporary movies, car work, you know, I can go worry about tomorrow. I don't even have to stick around, that kind of thing. So one of the sets that I really liked uh, was the Black Panther headquarters. Um, and obviously you had to create that, and then it had to get destroyed, and then it had to be redone. Correct. And so what was that like? That was logistically very scary when i read it and we were having our meetings about it the number of beats where because it gets trashed on camera Mm. then then the cops set fire to it then we see it burnt out but before we see it burnt out we also see a dream sequence where it's been trashed again in a different way right and and then we come back and it's been restored and so i said um uh let's establish what the look has to be which was sort of an amalgam of all you know we're, we're dealing with a, a socialist marxist organization that didn't keep great records so there's very little interior photography that's accessible of what these spaces look like um so that became an amalgam of kind of all the black panther offices nationwide we were pulling individual details you know there's a cork board on the wall with ex members who are no longer allowed in the premises that we took from the san francisco office there was you know that kind of counter style i think we took from um i think it was photos in the new york office uh, so, so there were elements that were very true to what those interiors looked like, but they were various offices we were pulling from. But we did have Mama Kua, uh, Fr- Fred's widow, come when I, when it was dressed, and she was like, "Okay, this feels right. This feels like a Black Panther office." So I think we got to a place where the baseline aesthetic was right, and the architecture, the exterior architecture, was very similar to the real Chicago office. You can you can hold those photos side by side, and they, and were really. I think other than the front facing elevation of the glass, the way the glass is oriented, we were, we were pretty spot on with what the, what the Chicago office looked like. Um, so then in terms of the logistics of figuring out when in the shooting schedule, we're going to do these different elements. Um, we broke the burnt out interior office off from the schedule. And we found a building of similar era construction, a block away. And then we, hollowed out that space and then built it back out to resemble a similar footprint 
to what our first floor at the Black Panther headquarters um, that we'd established looked like. And then we made that look burnt. Then they gave me a day down to come back to that space after, after we cleared out so that it looks like it's in process and it's being painted. While, the, while they were shooting that stuff out, it gave us the opportunity to clear out our original Black Panther headquarters, lay new carpet, repaint the entire space, scrape the chip paint off the walls, and bring in just a peppering of new furniture. Um, thankfully, we didn't, you know, the, the implication is that they've just moved back in. So there wasn't a ton of stuff to bring back in at that point. But I, I was going to say, you kind of faced a unique challenge because, like, so much footage exists of, you know, these real historical events. And then to double down on that, you're showing so much of it, like, especially with, like, the, the William O'Neill, like, the opening with Lakeith and then the end with, with, with the real guy. I was like, it's interesting how there's a little bit more of the plant that it, it's clear that they made little deviations intentionally. And I was right. wondering how you go about weighing historical accuracy versus like, you know, creatively uh, trying something new. Yeah, it was, it was very much the consideration was like the thing Shaka and I would constantly talk about is in, in terms of like making the movie exciting and digestible um, was um, how could this be the kind of like, classic Warner Brothers Sunday afternoon action movie that that you've seen a million times, but now it's been like edited for TV and it has commercial breaks in it and you're folding laundry, but you still want to watch it. You just don't change the channel. You just leave it on. Um, and so we, we were really, really cognizant of like cinematic trope and genre stuff. And, and you know, the, the references we were constantly throwing around were like Michael Mann movies. Mm. Um, so that dictated kind of, what the movie aspired to be in terms of like a studio picture. And then wherever there was the opportunity to be as truthful to the storyline as possible, what that often meant was just truncating events. Cause all that stuff happened. It was just a question of the amount of time in which these sequences take place is, is obviously truncated for the movie. But the stuff that was emotionally integral to preserve the memory of Fred Hampton and his story was the stuff we tried to be as historically accurate about. So like his apartment is a stick for stick recreation of the apartment, the mattress upholstery, the lamp on the bedside table, the table itself, every piece of furniture, every wall color, every treatment, um, you know, that you can see like drywall marks, like everything, even the placement of the bullet holes is based on the court case files. Um, and that was something we, we tried, we tried really hard to preserve. Uh, but you know, you, the other spaces where there's leeway, it's like the shootout in the refinery didn't, didn't occur anywhere remotely as cinematically in, in real life as it did in the, in the movie. So, so that, that was an opportunity to get, to get fun with it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm sure you know this, but you shot partially at Ohio state reformatory, which is very famously where some of Shawshank Redemption was shot. And yeah. I was wondering what that experience was like and if it was eerie. Yeah, and and I think Air Force One shot there as well, because uh, we rolled up and there was a the remnants of of an ancient gate that had been lost to the sands of time. And I realized it was a fake gate left over from a movie from thirty years ago that had shot there. Um, it's wild. I mean, it's more it's more wild to think that all prisons in the United States looked like this at one point and uh, not uh, not I'm not talking a hundred years ago we're talking a generation ago all prisons looked like this um it's uh it's a it's a spooky place for sure there's parts of that prison that are terrifying and we would uh when we had breaks while we were prepping we had a lot of paint work to do there and stuff to bring it back up to snuff and um 
we would definitely poke around in the dark with like our our, our iPhone flashlights, uh, uh, like scaring ourselves, and and then running back to the air, like the well lit, warm, safe area that we were working in. Um, but you know, it's it's definitely a cinematic treasure, and it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. So so the entire economy of this town is like built around the tourism of this space, um, and there, it's also across the street from a functioning. Uh, maximum security prison so it's got this weird kind of energy about it um but it, you know it's hard not to appreciate shawshank and they also have some shawshank props and stuff there so you're kind of you're walking in the footsteps of giants you know yeah yeah so just to sort of i guess slowly wrap up on judah specifically um were there any like specific uh unique challenges that judas brought that maybe you didn't encounter on other movies or something you learned maybe that you'll take forwards yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the uh, the prescient nature of a historical story that's been overlooked was something that taxed everybody's hearts the whole time. You wanted to do the story justice in a way that, um, as engaged with other fictions as I've been, uh, there wasn't the kind of uh, societal responsibility to, to do this the right way that there was on this movie. I think that was probably right. the, the biggest one. Um, I am also I am I am a white designer. Um, trying as hard as I can to inject myself into a, a, a black experience for the purposes of communication. Um, and that was something that is uh, obviously a consideration in every regard. You know, there was not a single moment on that film where um, I'm not trying to be cognizant of my own presence in this space and also understanding of, of the external around me. Um, and you have members of this story who are, who are alive and well, and not just present on the film set, but also still fighting this battle that they've been fighting for, you know, an entire generation. And so it's not a question of like digging up the past. It's like, they're still in the trench. Um, and so you, 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 it's, it's very easy to, um, to uh, get swept up in, in your own emotion when you're trying to process all this stuff. Cause it's a horrendous story. Um, so that was that was definitely the biggest challenge. And then on top of that, it's you know it's a it's a studio period piece, and so the logistical and creative decisions are are um, exponentially more complicated and deserve more consideration every step along the way because the entirety of the world has to be considered as opposed to just the um, just the foreground uh, emotional stuff in the script. You know, it's like with a safety movie, um, I'm not terrified if there's a, a city bus a block away. Uh, with this, it's like, well, you know, we got to hold the role until, until it clears that kind of thing. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of twofold. It's like the, the depth and breadth and scope of this world's fucking dynamic and crazy and huge and period. And also it's a very sensitive, very real, very human scale story. And that, that dichotomy is, is, was definitely tricky along the way. So pivoting a little bit, I'm sure much of your early career was shot guerrilla style without permits. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that's even still sometimes the case today. And I was wondering if you have ever been like rounded up or if you have some sort of a technique for avoiding the authorities when trying to shoot in public places. Well, it's easier in New York now than it used to be. When I first started, when I was making movies in high school and stuff, it, it was it was you would get chased away all the time. Um it's always better to beg forgiveness and, and ask be permission. A, yes, it's always better to beg forgiveness because the worst case scenario, you got one unusable take before you get kicked out versus not even getting the camera up. 
Um, because nine times out of 10, you will get what you need out of it. You know, you just can't be afraid to, um, to be very friendly, but forceful and get your coverage, get it in the can and, and be fluid about it and, and be considerate, you know, um, more often than not, you wind up getting what you need or getting away with what you need. Yeah. But we pulled some crazy stunts for sure, especially in the early days, um, trying to think of a specific i mean it's just yeah it's just a it's just a broad swath of memories of just like okay go 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 quick 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 you know um get that shot in the museum of natural history that they the, there's no fuck way that they would have ever allowed us to get you know the mosquito and daddy long legs that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and it was also it what was what for me especially as a production designer what was it, the most important learning learning experience about stealing shots uh, or shoot shooting gorilla footage is that a movie, you know, there are people who there are filmmakers who pride themselves on making a movie as small as possible. And there are filmmakers who pride themselves on making a movie as big as possible. And I think the most important f- facet of, of flexibility in, in movie making, especially at that level is making a movie for the absolute right size. It needs to be that's that, that is not, that doesn't is not the same thing as making a movie as small as possible. Just be very clear and direct about what you need in order to accomplish exactly the shot you, you're hoping to achieve. If that means three do, three extra people, you got to get those three extra people. If it means you can do it without six of them, send them away, send them home. Um, you would you should always aim to make it as streamlined as possible, but be cognizant of when you need more because otherwise uh, it will never live up to its full potential. You know, and and that for me, like sitting out and being like. On, a, on the early Safdie movies being like, you guys want me to come? And they're like, no, no, no. And I'm like, cool, I'll stay back and I can be processing other stuff that'll be helpful for the movie. That was that was an important skill set for me to, to really learn and, and like not feel like I had to be there all the time, you know? Great. So since you mentioned the Safdies, uh, mm-hmm. that provides a great segue. Uh, we want to just ask, first on Good Time, uh, how'd you get permission from Domino's and what was, what was that like? Well, they're individual franchisees. So, so the manager of that particular location, I believe said no fucking way. And then Dom Domino's, I believe said no fucking way. And I think they just shot it. <laughs> I think, they, I think they shot it until they got kicked out. As I recall, I could be wrong about that. Or it's all, maybe it's possible Domino's corporate said no. And the manager said, okay. And they started shooting and the manager realized how violent and visceral the scene was. And then was like, no, 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 you guys got to go. But we had already gotten enough footage at that, at that moment. Um, I think that's, I believe that's how it went down on that. Good time was uh, just an exercise in stamina, man. That, that whole thing, it was, you know, 30 days of straight night photography in the coldest time of year in New York city. Like that was, that was a, that was a bear. Can you hear the dog? Yeah, Uh, that's, it's good. It's not not enough to the point where it's a problem. Yeah. So, uh, I heard you talking about how they hired a lawyer for eighth grade to like clear all the rights and mm-hmm. how I can't imagine they're hiring you a lawyer for every production. So how does it go with like little background posters and stuff with getting stuff cleared? Cause I'm um, sure, I'm sure that's under your jurisdiction. It is. Uh, so it depends on who's releasing the movie. Um, if, if you're couching this question in terms of like, young filmmakers on their first movie who don't have enough money to clear art. Uh, Here's the deal. And this will be super helpful for anybody who's just engaging in this process the first time. Um, There's a couple of routes you can go. You can either fabricate your own poster 
using licensing licensed you know image that you build online and make your own shit that looks like the real shit uh you can clear the real thing which may or may not cost money it's a crapshoot and a lot of times people say no and it's it's time consuming and it basically means you need a person at a desk dealing with the shit or uh you can do what we did on eighth grade which is we approached a we approached a lawyer who specializes specifically in documentary film and we said um we would like to take you on as counsel for the art department so that we don't have to clear anything because we are making our best effort to accurately portray a teenager. And would you be willing to defend it? And the, um, the attorney looked at the scope of our budget and the ask and said, yes, absolutely. So long as you're not making fake posters, you got to go to Spencer gifts. You got to buy posters in stores that a teenager would buy posters. in. if you can prove that with receipts, then I will, then I will defend it in court. But most of these small movies, um, if your movie is less than $500,000, um, the a the likelihood of uh, legal recourse for rights shrinks. Obviously, b um, your the 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 number of people that are going to see this in a theatrical release are most likely a smaller one. And and if your movie blows up, you know, um, fingers crossed. Uh, chances are it'll premiere at a festival, and most. Uh, error and omission policies for releasing a movie of that scale will cover the liability of the 90 days or whatever that term is in which somebody can press charges and cease and desist you. So if your movie premieres at Sundance and you had a Taylor Swift poster in the background of a shot, that would mean that one of Taylor Swift's people would have to be at that screening when that clock started but for them to then issue a cease and desist, the likelihood of a festival circuit movie being seen by the party who's being affected by that piece on the wall is astronomically small, which means that insurance policies are probably willing to cover it, especially if the total budget of the movie is like, you know, 80 grand or something. So when that 90 day window closes, it's too late for them to press charges and your movie got out. What winds up happening is, it becomes a little more expensive if you sell the movie because IFC is going to say, well, we're going to, you know, we wanted to give you $500,000 for this movie, but we're, we got to pocket a hundred K to deal with the licensing on this one poster in this one scene or whatever. And then, and then they'll wind up negotiating it. Um, so that's, that's the easiest route to go about it. So I think the general rule of thumb for, for young filmmakers, I would say, I would recommend is if it's a store-bought poster, uh, then I wouldn't stress about it until it's in the can and have this conversation with the producer ahead of time. And if it's a piece of art, a painting or a sculpture, do your best to try to clear it, you know, because it's a, it's a, an individual artist who made that thing. And they're usually a lot more approachable than, than dealing with some mega corporation to get a star Wars poster or something like that. Um, but I've also had really good luck on tiny movies. I did this kid's movie years ago that not a lot of people saw that I was really proud of. And it took place in 1977 and there were, we talked. I approached Lucasfilm and I said, "Listen, it's it's about kids in the summer of 1977. I need to put Star Wars all over this movie." And they were like, "Yeah, no problem." And they were cool about it. And we had vintage Star Wars stuff all over the place. There was a scene where some where a hand prop was, you know, somebody's unboxing like a Kenner Star Wars uh, action figure. So um, you'd be you'd be surprised how how sometimes it's actually very easy to get it. Um, but you just have to be vigilant and, and kind of take every, take everything at a case by case. 
go Kathleen Kennedy. Um, yeah. Uh, just <laughs> says no one ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, just in terms of other tips or tricks that you've used, you've, you've spoken about how you use fish tanks, um, mm-hmm. as good natural lighting sources. And, uh, do you have any other onset tips or tricks like that? Yeah. That, well, that's, that's a, that's a big safety request. They always want fish. They always want fish tanks, um, for low lighting. Um, oh boy. Uh, yeah, I, there are rules that I was taught when I was, when I was starting out, you know, I was doing set dressing work and stuff that I was always told that I've always ignored intentionally um, because I think they add more personality and realism to, um, to aesthetics, things like straightening pictures on the wall. It's like, I hate straight pictures. I make sure that all the pictures are just a little tiny, tiny bit off. That's not perceptible, but, but all of a sudden feels subconsciously human or when a lampshade is on a lamp, and the seam, you know, because it's a it's a drum, and you have the seam facing the camera, and then there, there's always somebody on the set who's like, "Hey, can we turn the lampshade around?" It's like, "No, fuck you, keep it." Like, life happens, and how you process and digest life is every single element is a facet of how you're explaining things to an audience and how they're interpreting image. So don't be afraid to embrace real life and just be be in control of it. If you want it to be clean, make it clean. If you want it to be dirty, make it dirty. But but just be aware, be aware of every, every step of the way, you know, uh, lamps in the shot that are turned off. Some DPs have a problem with that or white walls. Sean Bobbitt. I said to him, I want this one, this, uh, we had this one shot in Judas and the black Messiah of Jesse Plemons eating a sandwich in his office by himself. I think it's a beautiful shot. And I think the reason it's a beautiful shot is because he's sitting in front of a blank fucking white wall with nothing on it. And it's solitary and it's depressing. And I fought, I didn't have to fight with Sean. I just said, listen, it is of the utmost importance that there's nothing in the background of this thing. And it's got to be as sad as possible. And so in exchange to be, um, to have some control over the frame, you know, you dress the bottom of the frame, the things on the top of the desk, just to, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're showing the audience, you know, how to play the piano, but you're not, you're not going for the solo. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's that kind of consideration when you're composing imagery, uh, be it a fish tank as an advantageous source of low lighting or a wall where you're um, where you're intentionally not putting anything up. But as long as you exercise that level of understanding of what you're trying to achieve, I think those little tips and tricks start to present themselves anyway. So a scene, a scene that stuck with me the first time I saw Good Time, almost entirely due to the production design, is the, the neon monster house acid trip thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear... How, how that came to fruition uh that it's a real theme park it's not a real neon sign and we added a ton of neon and uh spooky dressing to it to get it to a horrendous cinematic place um and it was you know oftentimes especially with josh with sets like that you you work until your fingers are hamburger meat you're just putting things in and putting things in and putting things in and now it's the night before shooting and he comes on set and he's like you need twice as much stuff and you're like fuck and you stay up all night and you just keep adding more and adding more and adding more so that that was just that that was like a race against the clock to just stick more and more neon and more and more spooky dressing into that into that um environment um but the bones were awesome i mean the the getting getting to shoot that thing was so cool what a weird place you know um but uh, but yeah, that was all. That was the, a, a huge chunk of that was stuff we brought in. 
Um, I guess kind of closing out good time. Uh, unless Trent, do you want to ask about the paint explosion? Uh, if you ask about the aerial hotel room shot, of course, please. Yeah. So like, if you could talk about the hotel room chasing Robert Pattinson and the falling man. Oh, you mean the, 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 the apartment at the end. Um, it's, uh, that was, uh, uh, credit where credit's due. Samson Jacobson, location manager, pulled that apartment out of his ass and it looked like that. The only thing I brought into that space was that reflective coffee table. Everything else was spot on. Um, and uh, I think everyone involved was smart enough to not fuck with that interior. Uh, that was that was just some dude's apartment that he found, and it was like, okay, roll sound, we're good, you know. So you just have to embrace stuff like that when it happens. Falling out of the window is a very complicated sequence that they knew they were gonna, they were going to need some CG elements for, and I, um, at that point in the picture, I there was no need for me to open my mouth with that shit. Let them let them hammer out the best methodology. I didn't have to build the facade or anything, you know, like in, in good time, uh, that was all a CG element in uncut the window stuff. That was a fake brick wall on a stage that we built. Uh, the overhead is a real, real building, uh, when he's passing the bag, but being held out the window and, and back up, that was all we, we matched the brick on stage and put it on the platform and faked all that stuff. So I think it's, it's really a case by case, but in good time, it was really just like, what critical elements from the facade of the building do we need in order to pull this off? And then they took his little body and they made him look like he was higher than he actually was kind of thing. So jumping to uncut gems for a minute, uh, I'm sure that a lot of, I mean, just the thematically good time and, and uncut gems are, you know, parallel and, Mm -hmm. um, uncut gems, uh, like you, you do a lot of shooting with Adam Sandler on the street and I can't Mm -hmm. imagine that you got permits and so it's just a juxtaposition of like a seemingly a high budget picture with high budget stars but still you you kind of back to your old ways in a way yeah well it it was we did have permits but it definitely was a hybrid because josh in particular had spent years um kind of uh inserting himself as, as slowly and as comfortably as possible into the world of the diamond district, because it's so insular. All those guys know each other. They've all been on the block for generations. They do not want outsiders coming in. And so it took a lot of finesse of, in Josh's part, just with handshakes and stuff and, and, and playing up his Jewishness to get into bed with these guys enough for them to even get comfortable with the idea of a movie coming. So then all of a sudden, Sandman shows up and everyone on the planet loves Adam Sandler. He does not have an enemy in this world. So now we they're cool with us, you know, quote unquote, cool with us making a movie. But this like megawatt, lovely human being that everybody, even if you've never seen his movies, you know, Adam Sandler is the nicest guy on the planet. Like there's no there's not there's not a mean bone in the guy's body. So by day three, he's walking down the block. Hey, oh, hey, everybody wants to say hello to him. And so it was. Just, it wound up becoming the kind of thing where it's like, even though we had permits, even though we had trucks around the corner, and even though we can kind of control um, the logistics in terms of vehicles and parking and stuff, we let the Diamond District be alive and just made it clear that don't call him Adam, call him Howie. It was that kind of thing. And it, and it was fluid, but it was functional enough to get what they needed out of it. And we tried to keep a low profile for the exterior work. And then the, di- the interior diamond shop i built that all on a stage so that we were nowhere near the diamond district when we needed to do that uh 
by the time we start doing the other pieces of him navigating New York City, um, that was stuff where we actually needed to, you know, shut the streets down and, and put in extras because it, it was a lot easier to make this movie amongst family in this little controllable block than it was to like start going a field and have them cross streets and stuff. You know, th- that was the stuff where you're surrounding him with 15 of our guys. Um, and, and the, the closest, uh, the, cl- the closest bogey has no idea it's Adam Sandler cause he's far enough away that he, he can't tell, you know? Um, so Trent and I are like, I would say extreme seven fans. So, uh, Darius Kanji is obviously, uh, he's a cool guy to us. So, so. uh, what was, what was that like? And, you know, uh, it, it it was contentious between him and I, um, (laughs) yeah, but in a way that I think was for the betterment of the movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we have, we have two very different schools of thought in terms of approach, um, so there was a lot of butting heads, but it was, it was always creative butting heads. It was mm-hmm. never like a personal thing or anything like that. Um, he is, uh, he's incredibly exacting. He, and he has an incredible, incredible mode of communication with directors. I mean, these are guys that I've known for 15 years and within a want to say, Hey, shut up, Inu, shut up, dude. So he, he's, he's a guy who has an incredible way of communicating with directors. And, you know, the Safdies are, are filmmakers I've worked with for 15 years. And he, by month, by the end of month one, he was communicating them with them creatively on l- levels of depth akin to the kinds of conversations that I was having with them. Um, he, he understands the craft uh, and the medium well enough to... Um, to kind of do it by rote. I mean, you know, he's a master, master technician. No doubt about it. So an unsung Bombback movie that you worked on is Mistress, Mistress America. And yeah, nobody ever asks about Mistress America. Yeah, I'm about to ask a question about Mistress America. Shoot. Yeah. So, so I think uh, probably one of the most, like, lively sets in all of his movies is the Connecticut house. And what's it like, like, spending so much time in one location? Because- it was a nightmare. It was an absolute, it was an absolute nightmare. That was at the tail end of the shoot. We were all exhausted uh, and we were working very long days and it was a very long commute. And the whole house was glass. And the rub with this goddamn house, man, I'll never forget it. The rub was that the first day we showed up and there, were, there was no snow. And we shot a full day's work. And then every consecutive day we showed up, there was a massive snowfall that had occurred overnight. And so every morning... We had to shovel out all the because you could look in any direction. You could always see outside. And every one of Sam Levy's shots, um, God, God bless them. It like it, they're all the you know these these uh, wild uh, kind of old Hollywood camera moves where we're just like blazing through that house at high speed. So you see the whole goddamn world. So it was a constant, <laughs> it was a constant battle to just get rid of all the snow and then run inside as fast as you could and move all the equipment into the one little corner of the building that you weren't going to see for that shot, then do it all again for the next setup. And, you know, Noah has an incredibly, incredibly high take ratio. Um, He, you know, where, where most filmmakers would shoot, you know, five to seven takes per setup. He's shooting on on his non-union movies. uh, He was shooting 45, 50 takes per setup. So, so these resets where you're just, kind of trying your best to perfect it and perfect it, perfect it. It's not getting there and you're getting physically more and more tired as you go. It was, it was, it was a dogfight. It, it was, it was so just bearing down on you. Um, 
but the sequence turned out great and the house was really beautiful and obviously that was a very low budget movie that that i made very early in my career so it wasn't like i had a huge amount of creative control over the aesthetic of the house um but uh but it was it was a lot it was a a logistical ballet to get every shot ready Uh, and you know also what people don't understand is they think even filmmakers they think oh well we're shooting in this place for a week it'll be easy everything's established it's fine but what they don't understand is but right right on the other side of the camera is like 10 people eating things and drinking things and leaving the food wrappers out and moving the furniture so they can put their cart of equipment there so um so keeping up keeping up appearances was kind of the name of the game in that whole sequence and i i, I it's burned into my head just running around that house like literally you know three seconds ahead of camera to just clear surfaces before the camera would come around the corner and stuff so um speaking on Noah Baumbach, like how much um creative sort of specificity does he have and sort of in terms of your work like how much is it sort of just left up to you and how would that sort of compare to working with the safties or, or somebody else speaking earlier in what you said about like the tilted frames i think francis ha is you know the 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 quintessence of of tilted pictures mm-hmm. and so it's interesting with that mind yeah, well, Francis Hall was the apartment that uh, Greta and I were shoot, we were living in at the time. Uh, and then when we finished making that movie, we all we all moved out as fast as we could. We couldn't live in that space anymore. Um, and I think a lot of our aesthetic values in terms of approach were forged in that movie specifically because we were trying to figure out how to best capture the space we lived in. Um, but I, you know, I think what I would say about Baumbach and the Safties to a certain extent would be true of all directors that. Um, I would consider the auteurs I've been lucky enough to work with. Cause at this point, you know um, I've, I've worked with filmmakers who whose common thread, if be it Shaka or Miranda July or, or the Safdie brothers or Baumbach, um, the common thread that I notice of brilliance between all of them seems to be, um, and this will answer your question about creative freedom. It seems to be that the, the directors who who really excel um, don't, tell me what they want and uh, are instead are very apt to communicate what it is they don't want telling mm-hmm. telling me what uh, what they don't want sets me up in a position where i can creatively exercise some mind blowing you know i can come up with creative concepts that they couldn't have been considerate of and that, that's true of the people who work under me as well you know in eighth grade um my decorator uh i i said to my decorator she, she had you know she didn't grow up in this country and she's a woman. And I said to her, I was like, your perspective on American life is going to be different than anything I could ever dream of. And also I was never a 13 year old girl. So, so what you're bringing to the table is inherently as important, if not more important than my ability to communicate those, those aesthetic needs. So I think, I think with Baumbach, um, you know, the Safties are a little different based, based solely on the sheer amount of time I've spent with them. I think there's a lot less that needs to be said because we've already made all the stupid jokes. Um, you know, run out of things to say years ago, but but with Baumbach and 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 Miranda July in particular, um, I just remember being very impressed with their their willingness to. Okay, okay, buddy. The problem is he knows I'm talking to somebody, but he doesn't know who I'm talking to. Um, with with Baumbach and Miranda July in particular, I I I just I specifically remember their willingness to um, give me the freedom to approach them with ideas. And be very clear about what they're not looking for. That was the big thing. Right. 
So I heard you say that the character of Benji and Francis Ha is at least like spiritually based on you. And yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So are you like writing Gremlins three and stuff? I heard they like that borrowed, was. I heard they like borrowed joke. your clothes. Yeah. Yeah, that was a joke based on the fact that I had written a script for a new Beverly Hills Cop movie that was sitting in my desk drawer for a very long time. Um, and the my whole premise was that Axel Foley is being framed for murder because his gun was his gun from the first movie was stolen out of the lockup and he had to go back to Beverly Hills to clear his name and everybody's trying to kill him. I thought that was very funny. Um, so that's that that's where that came from. But yeah, I bet the character of Benji to a certain extent was ripped from the headlines for sure. Yeah, I I I like to think that uh I'm a little cooler than his character is, but uh but I don't know. Yeah, it was my clothes, it's shit I said. I remember we were shooting camera tests or they were shooting Sam and Greta and Noah were shooting camera tests for the movie and I was still working on a different film. I was working on Adam Leon's picture and I was coming home exhausted from being on another set. I walk into the apartment and I would just look in the living room and there was a guy who looked like me wearing clothes that Greta had borrowed from me saying things that I'd said to her previously uh, with like, with like a small film crew with like of this fantastic filmmaker shooting them. And then I would just go into my bedroom and watch <laughs> It was a very strange out-of-body experience. And then I think it was like day two or day three, I just went up to Noah. I was like, you got to let me design this picture. It would be ridiculous if I didn't, you know. Had you, like, seen Kicking and Screaming by, by oh, this yeah. time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm sure to have him, like, in your apartment and stuff, pretty surreal. Yeah, it was, it was totally crazy. Totally crazy. And, and Greta at that point had already been in Greenberg, so he had been a topic of discourse in the home for some time. You know, it was like Noah's presence around town was being felt in a big way. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was bananas to have this, this guy who excels in conversational um, dialogue, uh, recapturing your conversational dialogue, like a fictionalized version of you. Uh, it was a, was, yeah, it was, pretty, it was pretty wild. It was definitely, definitely wild. And you know, I've had the good fortune of working with Josh Hamilton now a number of times, and uh, and you can see that kind of you can see that kind of glimmer out of him too. It's like, yeah, just being a part of those kinds of movies is always very special. Yeah, Josh Hamilton is awesome as the dad in eighth grade. As in- Josh, Ham- Josh Hamilton is awesome in general. Every time I talk to him, I should email him actually, but every time I talk to him, I always uh, I always bring up the movie With Honors, the, uh, which I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, it's Brendan Fraser. And uh, Joe Pesci, Joe Pesci plays a, a homeless bum on the Harvard campus who finds Brendan Fraser's uh, thesis paper and threatens to destroy it unless Joe Pesci can come live in their house <laughs> with all the roommates. And Josh Hamilton's one of the roommates. And it's the funniest movie. I love that movie so much. I, I always geek out about that stupid movie with him. Um, so last Francis Ha, um, there are very definitive scenes where you're in Paris and Sacramento and... Mm-hmm like at uh like francis's old college and i was wondering you probably went to those places and how do you go about designing in a foreign city stuff like that um so for for france for france what we did was we rented uh an airbnb that we thought looked good for the movie uh based on the photos and then we got there and uh, obviously, Noah Baumbach is very good friends with Wes Anderson, uh, who keeps a serious presence in that city. 
and had some resources. So uh, one, like an assistant of his or something came to kind of help us navigate uh, Paris. And the, the way we shot was not that dissimilar from the plot. What we did was um, every afternoon we would wake up crusty eyed and, and exhausted. And um, I would get on the back of a moped with, uh, with Wes Anderson's assistant. And we would just drive around neighborhoods in Paris that we thought that he thought might be the right kinds of neighborhoods to, to shoot. And then I would pinpoint individual intersections and uh, photograph them and text the photos back to Noah, who would then say, yes, this looks good. And, pr- you know, primarily f- try to find locations that we could walk around a little bit uh, and get a couple of different shots in. And then after we got that work, we would go back to the apartment. I would usually break away from them, go back to the apartment, start dr- hiding everybody's personal bags because the whole crew was staying in this apartment um, and redressing the apartment to get it ready for the night work. Uh, we shoot all night and then, uh, and then repeat itself the, the following day. Um, it, was a, it was a whirlwind. It was an awesome experience for me in terms of experiencing that city because uh, location searching... I think in any city, not just a foreign city, but anytime you're you're in a different city than your own and you're and you're hunting for film locations, you 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 get to see the city in a completely different way than you would when you're um, when you're a denizen. So I really I had a wonderful experience in Paris on that movie. Um, and then Sacramento was a homecoming for Greta. You know that's her real house and her folks and stuff. So um, so for us it was a, a, it was a nice respite from the rest of the movie because all of a sudden we had this break where we were being welcomed into the Gerwig household. And her high school friends would show up to say hello and congratulate her and everything. Um, and and that was like that was kind of the polar opposite. It was like very home cooking, like take a break and and you know have a fun time making these last little pieces of the movie that we still owed. So I guess just sort of starting to close out a bit. Uh, we and moving on a bit. We heard you directed a Cash for Gold commercial. Yeah, we want details. I did. This was back when we would do anything for money. Right. Sure. We started off, Safety Brothers and I started off as sellouts and, and slowly found our moral compass. No, I, yeah, there, you know, at the time it was like any, if anybody had 10 grand and we knew it would pay our rent on the studio space, we would totally do it. So we, an old friend of Ariel Shulman's uh, had a family business that did cash for gold online and we had the cameras and we were like, yeah, we'll do it. And the Safties are like, there's no fuck way we're going to direct this commercial. And I was like, I'll do it. And, uh, you know, it's the same crew. It's not as if anything had shifted. Right. <laughs> but, but I get called the director. We go out to this house in Long Island to shoot this stupid commercial. Uh, <laughs> I, I think Ben Safties probably got a copy of it somewhere. I don't know. I, I think he edited it, but I haven't seen it in a number of years. But yeah, it was it was a stupid testimonial commercial. It's exactly as bad as you would hope it would be. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, I will say this, though. After we finished, the actor who was like, uh, send all your gold in, blah, blah, blah. You know, call 1-800-blah-blah-blah. After she left, we kept the lights and camera up. And then Benny stepped up to the bat, to the bat and he did a fake cash for gold commercial which which is incredible, uh, which I I hope that Benny still has it and it up because that thing was one of the funniest things we've we've ever shot. Uh, so what are you working on now? I saw Sesame Street and that seems really exciting, and also the the Brutalist. So if you could speak on either of those, yes, actually I'm doing neither. Um, unfortunately, no, no, but it's, it's I'm happy to talk happy to talk about them. Um, so. 
Sesame Street, we had started prepping for Warner Brothers. Uh, it was a fantastic script. Uh, Jonathan Kreisel was directing, who's an awesome comedy director, and it was starring the Muppets. So for me, it was a dream come true. Oh. Uh, and, Trent is uh, a big Rat- Muppets fan. I really like yeah. Muppets. Yeah, we had, I, I mean, I was working with them hand in glove. Uh, I had gotten permission from Warner Brothers and the Sesame Street people to we were going to build Sesame Street outdoors on a back lot in New York, um, stem to stern. So it wasn't just reusing the TV show set. I was building the whole block. We were pouring concrete. We had sketched out the first round of buildings, um, and we would we had built a chunk of the carriage house. We'd mapped out all the supports. And we were getting ready for the concrete pour, the initial concrete pour, because we were going to do a bunch of different concrete pours to make it look like the block had been around forever. Um, And we had built the interior of Bert Bert and Ernie's apartment. Uh, And then that morning, my decorator came into the office and she goes, I can't smell or taste anything. And I was like, oh, Oh, fuck. Um, And then we we shut down. Warner Brothers shut the movie down. That was that was March 14th of. uh, of year hell and then uh and then i don't know if it's coming back maybe it'll come back maybe it won't come back they threw everything away so we'd have to start over uh because we the storage costs were just astronomical it made way more sense to get rid of the stuff um so maybe it'll come back uh and then with the brutalist um you know i'd really like to help facilitate that movie with brady uh in any capacity i can there are some logistical issues with covid with international travel and the financing is hinging on local labor and stuff. So they may have to go with the European designer because he's shooting in Europe. I can say that I will, uh, if, uh, if all goes right in the world, which it better start sometime soon, um, I'll be doing, um, I'll be doing the new Todd Haynes picture, uh, which is a, a Peggy Lee biopic, uh, which is hopefully going to go in September. We'll be shooting that. Um, and, uh, and I'm also, uh, looking to do um, Chris Storer, who was the producer of eighth grade uh, is directing a new series for FX about a sandwich shop uh, in Chicago. Uh, so hopefully I'll at least get to do the pilot with those guys. That'll be him and uh, Hiro Mirai from Atlanta are doing that together. So those will be the two big projects on the docket this year. If, uh, if all goes well. So it has come time for the big final kahuna. Uh, what is the last great thing you watched? And it could be a first time or a revisitation. I, the last thing I watched was primal fear Ooh. with rich, with Richard Gere and Edward, Edward Norton. I've been doing, I've been doing this jump rope since the pandemic started. And so I like to watch uh, movies that aren't integral to my life because I can kind of zone out while I'm, while I'm jumping rope. And uh, yes, last night I watched Primal Fear, uh, and uh, it's one of those great '90s movies. I love the movies. I love all the movies from that period, like the one with uh, Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman, where Gene Hackman kills a woman and Clint, Clint Eastwood saw it through a two-way glass. I like it. I love those '90s movies where you could watch it on a Wednesday, then completely forgot you watched it. And then watch it again on Sunday, and it's only like after six minutes or something. You're like, "Oh, I just watched this a month ago." Uh, so I think that I'm, I'm I'm moderately confident. I think I watched Primal Fear like seven weeks ago, something like that. And I watched it again and experienced it uh, anew, as if I had never seen it before. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was the last picture I watched. Yeah, it's better than saying like you know, Trial of Chicago Seven or something. <laughs> 
I did. I, I did. I, I watched a bunch of the nominees. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the father. Um, but, uh, but yeah, primal fear all, all the way, baby. Yeah. You were, you know, one of the nominees, so you can't throw too much shade around. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's a weird feeling. I'll tell you what. I, I was going to say, you. I, I know you weren't, it wasn't nominated for best production this time around, but I feel like, you you'll know, get them. Yeah, I feel, I feel like... That's yeah. sweet. I told my dad, I said, Dad, I'm 36, I got a little time, it'll be fine. And also, let me, t- let me be frank about something. And this is uh, a loser polishing, you know, dusting himself off. Uh, not getting the production design nomination, but getting Best Cinematography and Best Picture, to me, means that the design is believable. Right. It's not, it's not loud. So, so that, if nothing else, that means it's effective. And if it's effective, then you're watching the movie and you're not thinking about my work and you're just enjoying the movie for the movie. And to me, that's a fucking win, dude. Mm. I was just going to say, invisibility is good. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's way better. For, for the grand scheme of the movie. And yeah. maybe your Oscar can wait. Sorry. Yeah, that's no, all right. I'm not in a rush, I don't think, you know. So, Parth, you want to bring us out? Yeah, uh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Sam, My Sam Lysenko. It was awesome talking with you. He worked on Judas and the Black Messiah. He's also worked on Uncut Gems, Good Time, Francis Ha. You probably have seen a movie that you like that he worked on. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Um, I know this has nothing to do with that delightful interview we just had, but it's May the 4th. Um, May the 4th be with you, buddy. Thanks, Trent. Yeah, I mean, what, what, will, what will it be by the time the listeners hear this? It'll be next week. It will have been no longer this day. This... Yeah, but so far as you know, we recorded this on May 4th, and um, we just want to wish each other a very May the 4th be with you. And your families. And this is to our listeners, right? Do you think there will be any Star Wars episodes in our near future? Clearly, we didn't we didn't plan for one. You know, they would have been timely, don't you think? We really dropped the ball. As a, as, if, as a movie podcast, there are a few responsibilities. And some of them are to uphold the, the expectations of a film podcast. And we failed. So thanks for bringing that up. Next week, we'll be talking about our thoughts. We'll be discussing the movie... Judas and the Black Messiah. Thanks again to Sam Lysenko for talking about his experience working on the movie. Maybe we'll have a guest. We don't know. Yeah, we were just talking about this. So, yeah, do you guys even like it when Parth and I just sit around just the just mono mono and chit chat, or is is it the third party that really get, get gets you? I feel like they joined the podcast to not listen to us. You know. Really? No. No, they love us. I love is the strong word. They they tolerate us. They tolerate us for our guests. I was I was gonna say that's kind of that's kind of our, our window appeal. Yeah. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. This this is our podcast. Craft, craft ser- services. Craft services where, where we talk about the movies. movies. Do you have a funny voice you can do just for the very end? My father was a listener of craft services one night he comes home crazier than usual and then he tuned in next week for the discussion of that interview that was pretty good